zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to a very special Vintage Video Patreon pick, where our patrons at the $100 tier are invited to request any pre-80s title they'd like for a custom review from the Vintage Video team, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And our friend Louis Letizia has stuck around for another month in our top patron tier to request Night Moves, released 47 years ago today, August 30th, 1975. It was written by Alan Sharp, directed by Arthur Penn, and released by Warner Brothers. The working title, Dark Tower, was changed to avoid confusion with 1974's The Towering Inferno. I like Dark Tower as a title even less than Night Moves. Yeah, I don't get that. Yeah, I don't get it at all. But I'm I'm guessing that the Dark Tower series had yet to exist yet, correct? correct? And that was probably an 80s thing? Right. Yeah. Of course, a Dark Tower film was eventually released, adapted from the Stephen King series, and another Night Moves hit theaters in 2013, starring Jesse Eisenberg and Dakota Fanning, but it has nothing to do with this one. Bob Seger also released an album called Night Moves the following year, and I fully expected the title track to show up somewhere in this, but again, unrelated. Working on a night moves. Why wasn't this called Night Moves with a K? I don't know. It well, should have been. I mean, I feel like it's supposed to have the double meaning though it's supposed to have because he mentions night moves in terms of chess right during the film but i also feel like you know he's a pi and so, so he moves at night mm. yeah i mean it's i think it's kind of silly but yeah i think it's supposed to have a double meaning the role of ellen mosby was offered first to faye dunaway who had just broken up with harris yulin who would be playing the man she's having an affair with she turned down the role to do chinatown so that probably worked out fine for her yeah i think so the reason she was able to leave this film for one that came out a year earlier is because Night Moves was actually shot mostly in 73, with a few key scenes saved for Melanie Griffith's 17th birthday, a mere three <laughs> weeks prior to the film's release. We open with Harry Mosby, played by Gene Hackman, parking his car outside the office of Mosby Confidential, from which he operates as a private investigator. He listens to his voicemails, and the first one is from someone named Nick, with a case they need him for. As Nick starts to spell out the details of the case, Mosby pauses the message to write them down. The client's name is Arlene Iverson, a former actress, and she has a missing daughter for him to locate. Nick wants to see Harry in person before he heads to her address so he can hand off more information on Arlene. On his way out to the office, Mosby searches his drawers till he finds a tape recorder. He heads out to Beverly Hills to stop by his wife's workplace. It's an antique shop, and right away Mosby is plucking things off shelves and lobbing them to the employees carefully guarding the show floor. Good hands. In a back room, Mrs. Mosby, Ellen, is arguing with someone over the phone when Mr. Mosby sneaks up and covers her eyes with a hand while the other one dips into her cleavage beneath the shirt. Do we establish before he actually arrives that this is his wife? Like, I think he just drives to a location right, yeah. yes. and, and shows up. Like, like we didn't actually, like, it's not like, I'm going to go see my wife. You know, yeah. like, there's no, <laughs> you don't know who this person is yet. Yeah, you're supposed to think he just wandered into an office and stuck his hands on a girl's shirt. And it feels that way. Yeah. It is very creepy. Yeah. 
Flustered but amused, she talks her way off the phone call before responding to him. When he tells her about Nick's assignment, she asks if he's given any more thought to working for Nick directly at his agency instead of taking their scraps. That's not an agency, that's an information factory. Mosby is not a fan of the new computerized generation of detectives and would rather get his hands dirty investigating things in person. Ellen asks how late he'll be working and if he'd like to join her and her gay co-worker Charles to see Eric Romare's My Night at Mods. I saw a Romer film once. It was kind of like watching paint dry. This line of dialogue would go on to be quoted in Romare's New York Times obituary in 2010. <laughs> Director Arthur Penn's actually a big fan of Romare's work, and the joke was more making fun of Mosby than the celebrated French New Wave director. Ellen is called to the floor to deal with a customer, and we cut right to Mosby P.I. at Arlene Iverson's place. She has a very romanticized image of a private detective in her head, and Mosby does his best to assuage her of it. Bizarrely, or maybe this is normal in Beverly Hills, the scene is repeatedly punctuated by the sound of squealing tires outside. I know the roads are narrow and curvy there, so maybe this is just an accurate portrayal of the neighborhood ambiance. It will go on sounding this way every time we return to this location. When she cuts to the chase, Mrs. Iverson describes her daughter, Delilah Grasner. Her father, Arlene's first husband, was a film producer with an interest in biblical epics, and so he chose the name Delilah for his potential actress offspring. She goes by Deli now. In the film, Delilah is 16, and she's been missing for two weeks, but the actress playing her is a 15-year-old Melanie Griffith. When Mosby asks for leads, Arlene is quick to cough up her daughter's affinity for sex, drugs, and alcohol. One of Deli's delinquent friends is a boy named Quentin, and Mosby wants his address and a photo of Deli taken in natural light. Arlene asks Mosby if he's seen any of her movies, and when he takes his time admitting he hasn't, she confesses that she was never really big. She picks up an older photograph of herself and compliments her own breasts to get a reaction from him. But the one she gets is not the one she wanted. Oh, I had lovely tits. Even if I do say so myself. Ah, they're sitting on a little bit of silicone now, but when they were up for grabs, they were really something special. Deli didn't do so bad either. The moment reads like Mosby's trying to piss her off so she'll stop flirting with him, and it definitely works. But it's also highly inappropriate for a teenage girl. Yeah. Yeah. When her mood changes, he immediately asks for his daily rate, 125 a day or 688 a day in 2022 bucks. He senses some hesitation. You can get cheaper. Can I get better? You're hired. We cut right to Mosby at Nick's office. It's supposed to look fancy and expensive because Nick runs a full-scale agency that uses computers to solve crimes, but it still looks 80s tacky, so there's wood paneling and yeah. giant plants everywhere, and for some reason a big bowl of grapes on his desk. Nick asks Mosby if he misses his football career, but he claims not to. We'll learn later that he played defense for the Oakland Raiders. He doesn't look like a defensive No, lineman. he does no. not. Mosby is playing with a tribal figurine that he took off a shelf, and Nick suggests that Mosby invest in these statues. They're appreciating faster than real estate, especially now that the Mexicans have got their backs up about their art treasures being ripped off. Excuse me, yeah. I hate to tell you what this little piece of crap is worth. Don't you like him here? Hmm? I would if they didn't all remind me of Alex Karras. The joke here is supposed to be that these fertility idols look like defensive linemen, but it's extra funny because the woman playing Mosby's wife, Susan Clark, would meet Alex Karras in person the same year the film was released, and later they married and appear together in films like Nobody's Perfect, among others. Hmm. Another detail I liked in this office was a dot matrix printout of a naked woman sitting on a stool. It's like the assy text version of porn, but yeah. it's clearly <laughs> made from a real photograph, it's not like illustrated. 
Nick's secretary enters the room and gives Mosby an audio cassette of all the information they have on Arlene. As he gets into his car, we hear Mosby playing the tape to himself. Arlene Iverson, maiden name Carson, age 45, born Scottsdale, Arizona, October 3rd, 1927. Father owned hardware store, discharged bankrupt in 33, died 35, self-inflicted gunshot. Attended Scottsdale High School, did not complete curriculum, came to Los Angeles in 44, enrolled Lee Spellman's acting studio, placed under contract to Universal Studios 46, appeared in eight films between 46 and 49, all minor roles. Married Irving Grassner in 49, played leads in three films for husband's independent production company, retired in 56. Daughter Delilah, born 57, sued Grassner for divorce 62, grounds mental cruelty. Grassner countersued on grounds of adultery, naming among others Thomas R. Iverson. Mosby laughs at this detail because Iverson was her second husband's name, so clearly there's some truth to these adultery charges. Divorce granted, grounds mental cruelty, custody of child awarded to subject, no alimony. Grassner set up trust fund for daughter. Trust includes residence plus securities and property yielding approximately 30000 per year. Subject sole support is income from this trust so long as she retains custody of daughter. Grassner died in 64. His will expressly excluded Arlene Iverson. All assets to daughter on 25th birthday. These details will prove incredibly important to the case, but Mosby doesn't hear them because he happens to be driving past the Magnolia Theater and sees Eric Romare's My Night at Mods on the marquee. So how old is is Arlene Iverson supposed to be again? She's according to this recording. Yeah, according to this recording she's supposed to be 45. Oof. She, she it's a rough 45, I would say. 45? That's what the recording says that he's playing in the car. But she was born in 27 and I presume that this movie is supposed to take place the year it came out, right? When when did it come out? In the 70s? It's shot in 73, so that would make her 45. I can do math. <laughs> <laughs> Mosby loops around in parks to watch the movie let out. He sees his wife Ellen and her coworker Charles exiting the lobby arm in arm. He starts to step out of the car waving and nearly gets their attention when he notices there are three people in their party. The third man, played by Harris Eulin, walks with a limp and cane. He shakes hands with Charles and Charles leaves them alone together. Evidently, the limp is real, as Yulin was recovering from a recent accident, but director Penn didn't think it detracted from the character. Alone, this mystery man and Ellen seem very touchy-feely. Mosby is confused by what he's seeing. It seems like he intended to simply join up with them, but he's completely blindsided by this development. Do they establish earlier that the person she's going with is gay? Because I think I missed that, and I was like, I, th- I honestly, up until this point, thought they had an open relationship no the the co-worker that uh works on the floor is the charles character that she supposedly yeah. was going to go to the movie with and he is a little bit effeminate there but i think somewhere else specifically he says oh you to- you were going to tell me that this guy was one of your gay friends or, or one of charles's gay friends he gets back into his car and decides to follow ellen and the mystery man at a stoplight near the theater he pulls up behind them and watches them kiss in the man's car mosby makes note of the man's license plate S-U-M-T-O-I, which seems a bit on the nose to me. Back at home, Mosby hides upstairs and waits for his wife to return. I will point out that I feel like that is a weird license plate for who this character ends up being. Yeah, because it would have to be a vanity plate. They didn't just do six letters. No, no, no. It's definitely a vanity plate. Like, somebody picked those letters, and the character that I feel like this guy ends up being is not somebody who would put something like that on right. his license plate. Yeah. Like, he seems 
older and mature and just like, yeah, this just kind of is the way it is kind yeah. of person. Back at home, Mosby hides upstairs and waits for his wife to return. She finds him watching the football game in his office on what looks like an eight-inch screen. Who's winning? Nobody. One side just losing slower than the other. She urges him downstairs to watch a larger television that won't ruin his eyes. She also offers him a hot cocoa, but he turns down both offers. The next day, we see Mosby arriving at Quentin's home and immediately kicking a basketball out of Quentin's driveway. The home used for this location was that of record producer Phil Kaufman, road manager at the time for Graham Parsons. When Parsons suffered a fatal morphine overdose on the road, Kaufman fulfilled a promise to Parsons by stealing his body from LAX and driving it out to Cap Rock at Joshua Tree in a borrowed hearse. He poured five gallons of gasoline into the coffin in an effort to cremate his friend, and the resulting fireball only drew the attention of nearby law enforcement. Because there's no law against stealing a body, they were only fined $750 for stealing the coffin. <laughs> how, how is there no law against stealing a body? I don't know. How, do, how does a body not fall into the same category as literally anything yeah. else? Yeah. I mean... Like, I mean, it's not property per se. It's a person, so it's weird. It's a gray area. I mean, like I would, I would think like even after like Charlie Chaplin's body was stolen, they would write that into law. Did it happen to Chaplin, or did it happen to uh, Barrymore? Well, Barrymore too. Yeah. Well, or two. Do you guys recall <laughs> the last time we discussed people stealing their friends' corpses on its way to a funeral <laughs> for one last night together, and then dousing the body in gasoline before setting it on fire? Yeah, I do. What was that? What's the name of that movie? What was that movie S-O-B. called? S-O-B. That's right. That when, movie was no good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fine. It was fine, yeah. When the police stopped by Kaufman's house for questioning, they were actively shooting this scene of the movie. As Kaufman was escorted from his home by police, director Penn reportedly told Gene Hackman, man, we're shooting the wrong movie. They did eventually make a movie out of this particular corpse napping called Grand Theft Parsons, starring Johnny Knoxville as Kaufman, but it's unfortunately not great. But a great cast. Michael Shannon, Robert Forster. I watched it a couple nights ago. When did that come out? Uh, 2000-something. When Mosby kicks the basketball, it gets Quentin's attention, and he flips open the visor on his welding mask as he works under an old green car. This car will come back to play an important part later in the film. I do like that when he flips open the visor on the mask, we get a POV through this little rectangle window in the mask of Mosby approaching. When Quentin pretends not to hear Mosby calling his name, Mosby smashes a button to turn off the equipment Quentin's using. When he takes off his mask, we can see Quentin is being played by a very young James Woods, who denies at first that he is Quentin. Are you Quentin? Who's looking for him? When Quentin makes it clear that he won't be cooperating with Mosby's questions, Mosby stands and kicks Quentin's creeper all the way under the car, bashing the top of his head into barrels on the other side. I do appreciate the fact that you googled what the rolly thing under a car was called. It definitely was called rolly thing under a car in my first draft. <laughs> but it's called a creeper. Mosby straddles Quentin on the floor and asks his questions again and gets further this time. What happened to your face? I won second prize in a fight. Where was the last place you saw Delhi? In New Mexico. Easy. I went down there on a job, a movie location. Something for Warner Brothers. Deli went with me. There was a guy, one of the stuntmen. Deli started hitting on him. When I left, she stayed on. What was the stuntman's name? Marv Elman. Mosby asks if Elman is the one who messed up Quentin's face, which is now covered in cuts and bruises. Before leaving, Mosby makes a final offer. Any message if I run into Deli? Just be driving a truck. Yeah, they really get to you, don't they? I like that line. It's, it's a good line. 
Sometime later, we see Mosby parked on the side of what looks like Pacific Coast Highway. As he watches cars go by in his left-hand mirror, he plays a game of chess against himself in the passenger seat. Evidently, he has tracked the some toy license plate to an address, and he's here to confront the mystery man who escorted his wife home from the theater last night. They meet at the door to the man's place, and Mosby admits right away who he is. They have a surprisingly gentlemanly discussion about the affair. The man, who we'll come to know as Marty Heller, is surprised Ellen took so long to tell Mosby, and Mosby explains she never did. I saw you coming out of a movie. How'd she take it? I haven't spoken to her. You haven't spoken to her? What's this about? I want to know what I walked into. Ask your wife. He asks Marty how serious their affair was, and he says that it didn't mean a lot to him, and maybe not a lot to Ellen either. It seems to me you're the one it's serious for. Evidently, Ellen has told this man a lot about Mosby, and the guy starts spouting off about Mosby's whole life story in an effort to prove that Mosby is better than this behavior. It seems like he's actually luring Mosby into punching him. Yeah, that's exactly what it seemed like to me. Well, come on, take a swing at me, Harry, the way Sam Spade would. But Mosby is smarter than that and resists the urge. We cut to Mosby's kitchen later that night. He's sitting on a counter waiting for Ellen to find him so they can fight, but she's taking too long, so he frustratedly kicks the fridge to draw her attention. Apparently she already knows about the whole meeting, probably filled in by her boyfriend, and she doesn't understand why Harry went to Marty first. She spends the entire confrontation trying to make Harry the bad guy for dealing improperly with her infidelity, but Mosby's mask of indifference holds tight. This isn't something we can pretend doesn't involve you. What is this we bullshit? I didn't get caught fucking Marty Heller. Ellen stands up and flips on the lights looking indignant. She tries to make him feel guilty for operating as a detective and solving this whole affair, but he wasn't tailing her when he caught wind of things. Yeah. He was literally trying to meet up with them when he noticed firsthand what was happening. He could have been an accountant or a dentist and found out the same way. No, I, I, and I totally agree with that in terms of how he found out, but he did act like a PI when he went and just sat and waited for the dude to show up at his own house sure, yeah. and then confronted him. So yeah. like, I think that they both have a case here. Right, but I think her case is flimsy at best because who cares how he went about investigating it. For sure. I Well, I mean, I think it's kind of an asshole thing to do to not have talked to her right away as soon as he found out. Maybe. It's a wonder you didn't photograph the bed while you were there. My God, you're really prime, Ellen. You know that? In anger, he tosses a glass into the sink and it explodes. He flips on the garbage disposal to grind the shards away. She reminds him that Nick offered him a job for what she considers to be higher class cases, and he reminds her that he doesn't fucking want the job. This seems to be another example of an underwritten female character, because her arguments here don't really hold water. I don't actually know what she's upset about, unless this is just defensive lashing out because she has nothing to fall back on. I, I feel like that's the case here. Yeah, he just made an extremely good case against her, and so she has nothing to do but shout at him for other things she doesn't like. Yeah, exactly. She criticizes his job by describing literally every job I've ever heard of. I like doing what I'm doing! Doing what? People ask you to do boring, trivial sort of things, and you do them as if that were good enough. Well, turn that thing off! Can't hear myself think! Also, a job can't be sorted and boring. Pick one. I feel very upset about the glass in the drain and the garbage disposal, because I'm like, ah, oh, that's going to be such a pain in the ass to fix. Yeah. We cut from the kitchen at night to the set of the film in New Mexico. Two cars are chasing each other down a gravelly dirt runway as a biplane comes up behind them. There's a man hanging out of the driver's side of the green car Quentin was working on, holding a big canvas U.S. mailbag. As the biplane passes overhead, the man is able to hook the mailbag on the end of the plane's wing, and the shot is a success. It reminds me a lot of the climax of Charlie Varick, 
because of the biplane stunt flying and money in a canvas bag. Presumably mm-hmm. money. Yeah. Mosby and the stunt coordinator, Joey Ziegler, talk over the successful take, and the pilot loops around to fly low overhead to scare the shit out of him. He flies good. Crazy bastard, he does everything like that. Guys like Marv make me feel old. Well, I am old. So Marv Elman, bruiser of Quentin and recent lover of Delhi, is apparently flying this plane. After talking a bit, Ziegler recognizes Mosby from his football career and says he once watched him in a Pro Bowl. Elman pulls up to them in his biplane, and he's got this really annoying, croaky laugh. We cut right to the three of them at a bar that night. The conversation turns to Deli, and Elman says Ziegler acts like her dad all the time. Elman pulls Mosby aside to share a disgusting factoid about Arlene Iverson, the mother who hired her. See, the thing is, me and Arlene, we got it on together a couple of times. It's nothing like having a mother and a daughter. Gives you a sort of a kind of perspective know what i mean <laughs> mosby asks what happened with quentin and elman says quentin got jealous that Deli liked him so he picked a fight and lost elman parts ways with the men when he notices an unattended girl at the bar he'd fuck a woodpile on a chance there was a snake in it <laughs> i don't understand that line <laughs> what don't you understand i don't understand that line like that's how horny he is he would fuck anything even if the chances of sex are very slim but i thought like Okay, maybe I misunderstood the line, but I was like, is the snake desirable? No, that's the point, is that he literally he would settle for a snake biting his penis as long as it's contact. I took it a different way. Okay, so you're saying that the idea of a snake biting his penis is desirable. No. Why I would that be desirable? I don't know. <laughs> I don't understand this line. I, I I think the line has to do with the fact that a snake is all throat, and it would be sexually no, pleasing for him. That's it not has, the point. To shove it his penis the point, has fangs. The point is literally just that snakes. he would literally fuck anything. <laughs> well, okay, wait, wait. Say, say the line again. He'd fuck a wood pile on the chance there was a snake in it. On the chance. So, like, I will do this because the thing that I want the most would not be most. there the thing to that be a I, snake in it. It's not, uh, upon the chance that there would be a what snake he wants in it. most is a woman to be naked and for him to no, have no, no, sex no, no, with no. that but like i'm just saying he'd fuck a wood pile it's on not a, the it, chance that there might be a snake in it like the snake is the desirable thing it's more desirable than a wood pile that doesn't have a snake in it <laughs> <laughs> because then you're just rubbing your dick on wood that's what i'm saying i don't Maybe it's something biblical. It's not. You guys are thinking way too hard about this. The point is just that he would fuck literally anything for the worst sex possible. Okay. There's really not that much to analyze here. (laughs) Ziegler sits back down besides Mosby and says that it has always disturbed him to see men passing Deli around since he's known her from childhood. Mosby asks if Deli knew her mom and Elman were a thing and he says she'd have to be an idiot not to. Suddenly, a couple crash into the table and spill Ziegler's drink. The boy is quick to apologize, but laughs through it. He wants to replace the drink and asks what it was, and Ziegler slams the kid's head down on the table to find out for himself. (laughs) You tell me. Is that rye? With water. And the same for my friend here. Yes, sir. I'm actually impressed that he was able to tell just from licking the table what it was. The boy runs back to the bar to replace the drink, and Ziegler is instantly embarrassed by his behavior. It seems clear that he misplaced his anger with Elman on this kid. He probably wanted to slam Elman's head down all day, but couldn't do it because they're working together. 
Ziegler finds the kid at the bar and cancels the order and forgives the spill. The next morning, Mosby loops through the set before production has begun to say bye to Joe. He notices Quentin working on a plane. Quentin's pissed off because Elman's antics are destroying the engine. How long will it take you to get it flying again? Tomorrow? Right now. Shit. Mosby asks Joe when he last saw Tom Iverson, Deli's stepfather, so I guess he's still alive. It's been a while, though. Mosby returned to Arlene's home to meet with her and catches her stepping out of a bath. Not clear how he got all the way inside the house and outside her bathroom door while she was bathing, but it happened. We see him at another point in the movie uh, attempting to uh, get through a door with a credit card, the old credit card through the right, door Right, but slot. he wouldn't do this at her house. Apparently. Because he would have no reason to break in if she wasn't home. It doesn't make any sense. She's his client. He, he's he's trying to do business with her. You could have joined me. It's a big bath. Maybe some other time when I'm feeling really dirty. Arlene's quickly very flirty again, so Mosby hits her where it hurts by bringing up her former fling, Marv Elman. Deli had one of your scenes with Marv Elman in New Mexico. Dirty son of a bitch. Where's Tom Iverson? Mosby has evidently concluded that Deli's dalliance with Elman was no coincidence and she intends to go around fucking all of her mom's exes to torture her. He wants to know where Tom Iverson, Deli's stepfather, ended up, and Arlene thinks he's running a charter boat in the Florida Keys. Mosby makes plans to fly out to Florida as soon as possible. In his own driveway, he crosses paths with Ellen briefly, who wants to have a serious talk, but he keeps flying out of state. I can't work up much enthusiasm for talking. Before he goes, he asks why she told her boyfriend so much about his life, and she claims she was trying to remind herself why she loved him. He's annoyed by this shitty excuse and leaves. We cut right to Mosby in Florida. He finds Iverson's place in the Keys and strikes up a conversation with a female employee in a ski cap feeding dolphins in the nearby water. She tells him Tom will be here tomorrow if he needs a boat. I just wanted to ask him a couple questions. You sound like you might be the police. Mosby gives up quite quickly that he's here looking for Deli as a private investigator on behalf of her mother and the girl shuts up quick. She asks for proof of his story, and he presents her with his P.I. license. He asks why they keep dolphins, and she says they sell them to rich people who keep them as pets in their pools. That's I've so, never heard of that. That's yeah. so awful. Yeah. I imagine there's just dolphin shit floating around in it. They're so small, it's impossible to keep a dolphin in a pool like that. And it's chlorinated? Like, what? <laughs> no, it doesn't make no. any sense, and it's just terrible. I, I don't, you know, hopefully you would have the, uh, the Marlon Brando effect of don't chlorinate the pool right because it's killing the frog the frog is half dead <laughs> <laughs> she compares the trend to that new york myth about baby alligators being flushed down the sewers when they got bored with them they flushed them down the john now they got a sewage system swarming with blind albino shit-eating alligators i'm not too sure i believe that you're not one of those intent on the truth types are you do you guys recall the last time we discussed alligators being flushed into sewers and growing to enormous sizes yeah was it alligator? That's right. <laughs> Do you guys recall the time before that? Oh, no. There was another time? Yeah. Oh, shit. Hold on. Uh-oh. It's so close. Because it had Singenor. Singenor? No, it wasn't no. the Singenor one. Oh. That's scared to death. Give me a clue. Um, it's a group of people are wandering around in the sewers collecting rocks to sell. Oh, yeah. Defiance? Defiance is correct. Jan Michael Vincent convinces Luca Brazzi and the kid that there are giant alligators hiding in the drainage pipes. You mean to tell me two smart guys like you don't know about the sewer alligators? Bullshit. How do alligators get into them sewers, man? A few years back, kids used to get them as pets. You know, they'd uh, send them up from Florida in the mail. 
little bitty ones. And their mothers be trying to get rid of them, so they flush them down the toilet. And here, some of those little ones survived, and now they're about 20 feet long. The employee, who will come to know as Paula, has some surprising news for Mosby. Deli's here. What, now? This very minute. Hey, where are we going? She offers to lead him to their nearby living quarters where Deli is staying. As they pull up, Deli is hanging laundry on a clothesline and seems completely nude behind the hanging fabric, but quickly dresses from the available clothing items. Mosby strikes up a conversation with Deli, conveniently leaving out who he is or why he's here, but she's distracted when a plane passes overhead and she jumps into a boat to greet the pilot. It's her stepfather, Tom, on the plane. Mosby watches Paula prepare some picnic foods and is surprised when she pulls off her ski cap and long blonde hair pours out from underneath. You thought I was bald, right? She informs Mosby that locally she is very attractive, despite what he might think coming from Los Angeles. Mosby asks Paula if she's in a relationship with Tom, and she clams up again. He changes the question to asking if Deli and Tom, her stepfather, are an item. What are you with all these questions? You some kind of detective? He reaches for a snack on the table and she slaps at his hand. You are kind of edgy, aren't you? It's the heat and the low wages. As Tom and Deli arrive at the table, Paula recites a bit of Robert Louis Stevenson's Requiem, though she swaps the final couplet. Home is the hunter, home from the hill, the sailor, home from the sea. Tom and Paula lock eyes, and Tim wiggles his cap twice to send a message that Paula evidently receives. Mosby misses the exchange, and I don't know what it meant. <laughs> Hours later, Mosby and Tom are chatting, and it seems like Tom is up to speed on the whole plan of bringing Deli back to L.A., Mosby asks Tom if he has any good reason to send Deli away, and weirdly he launches right into an admission of pseudo-incest. <laughs> Not biological incest, I guess, but he is her stepfather and that's weird. Not just pseudo-incest, like rape. She's 16. Yeah. Like, this is upsetting. Yeah. Well, you've seen her. God, there ought to be a law. There is. At bedtime, Mosby returns to his room and finds Deli preparing it for him. For whatever reason, she's naked in one of his shirts, probably hoping he'll ask for it back so she can be naked again. Mosby isn't taking the bait and starts a game of chess by himself on the porch. Paula stops by with some spare towels and laughs at Deli's efforts to seduce the man. Deli takes it up another notch by asking if she can use his shower, claiming it's better than hers. This is for sure not true, but she wants him to see her naked somehow, damn it! He heads back to the porch to play more chess while she bathes. Paula is impressed. How do you resist? Oh, I just uh, think good, clean thoughts. Like Thanksgiving, George Washington's teeth. <laughs> she notices the chessboard, and he explains he's laid out the pieces to replicate a famous game from 1922. The specific game he describes was between K. Emmerich, white, and Bruno Moritz, black, in Bad Oeynhausen, Germany. Mosby shows her how the game could have ended with three night checks, but Moritz screwed up. This is where we hear our only mention of the title phonetically, but obviously it's spelled different because the chess knight has a K in it. Black had a mate. Didn't see it. Queen sacrifice. And three little knight moves. Check. 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 Oh, that's nice. In the moment, it feels like she's mocking him by pretending to care. Deli wanders by, sopping wet, still in Mosby's shirt, and she looks very frustrated that no one's paying attention to her. On her way back to her own cabin, Paula returns and makes Mosby play out the game moves again. Ah, oh, it's a beauty. Yeah. But he didn't see it. He played something else and he lost. Must have regretted it every day of his life. I know I would have. Matter of fact, I do regret it, and I wasn't even born yet. 
That's no excuse. I really like the little bizarre lines they're giving this girl throughout the film. Obviously, not existing is an okay excuse for losing a chess game, but I love how seriously she says it, like she means it. Maybe she does. She's she's an odd duck. Okay, so presumably this is a metaphor for the movie. Sure. But I'm trying to figure yeah. out what was he supposed to do that he didn't see and regretted for the rest of his life? Well, I think he misses a lot of stuff. Yeah. He doesn't seem to know the situation with Deli's money going to her mother. And that the only reason her mom wants Deli back is because she gets paid a monthly stipend for it. Um, but he thinks that Deli's worse off here than she was back home, which doesn't seem to be the case later. But And later he'll miss a big piece of evidence. Yeah. The next morning, Mosby heads out to the boathouse and Deli tries to immediately return his shirt. Presumably she's not wearing anything underneath. So Mosby stops her to admit that he's a private investigator hired by her mother. She refuses to return to L.A. with him, and as their argument gets louder, her co-workers ask if everything's okay, and she lies that he's flashing her. When one of the guys comes after Mosby with an oar, Mosby handily dodges it and kicks the man back into the water. When he catches back up with Deli, she claims that her mom doesn't care about her and just wants to access Deli's trust fund from her biological father. She refuses to return to L.A. unless her stepfather, Tom, insists. Mosby gives her a ride back to the cabins, but Tom is out for the day on a boat. Deli changes from her shirt into one off the clothesline, and he is finally flashed against his will. This shot and a couple others were supposedly pickups that they waited for Melanie Griffith to reach a legal age before they shot. Did you say that 17 was the legal age? In Florida, yeah. Oh, Florida. Deli reiterates that she won't go unless Tom says so. When Tom finally returns, he tells Deli that Mosby's right and she has to go. He asks Paula to take Deli out swimming for her last night in town to have some fun. That night, as they take the boat out, Mosby asks Paula questions about her life and finds the answers pretty bleak. Do you ask these questions because you want to know the answer, or is it just something you think a detective should do? Later, they're floating in pitch-black darkness when they shut off the engines. Paula flips on the lights under the boat, which it turns out is glass bottom. Deli strips nude and dives overboard to swim past the window, flipping them off. Tropical fish. It's the Alaskan fingerfish. It's very rare. Obviously, this footage would have been part of the pickups, too, unless they just didn't care and recorded a 15-year-old naked. They might not have waited to record any of it, and they just had to wait until she was 17 before they could put the movie out so they could say, oh, we shot this last, for sure. Yeah. She invites Harry to swim with her, but just as he's getting his shoes off, she panics in the water. Somehow, in the pitch-black water, Deli has discovered a downed seaplane. A pilot is still seated in the cockpit with fish nibbling at his face. Mosby has to dive overboard to wrestle Deli back onto the boat because she appears in shock. Paula throws a marker overboard so the Coast Guard can find the plane when they get here. They start the boat back up and head for shore. We cut back to their living quarters, and Paula's on the phone with someone, presumably the Coast Guard, explaining what happened. When she hangs up, she says they can't do anything till morning anyway. Tom seems shocked by the news, but admits that the Devil's Triangle, aka the Bermuda Triangle, is nearby and accounts for hundreds of missing ships and planes. Paula puts on the radio to lighten the mood and quickly can't help but dance to the music. Deli leaves for her bed to be alone. Tom and Paula dance with seemingly no concern for the body they've just discovered, and Mosby sneaks out, confused by these two. It's such a weird scene. Yeah. I I just, like, totally am, I'm, like, I'm with Mosby, and I don't know what to feel about this. Yeah. Yeah, because Tom watches Paula dance, he goes, yeah, that's the spirit, and then he starts dancing, and is like, (laughs) what? I I assumed that they were just both really drunk and not ready to deal with what happened. Well, I mean, I agree, and I think that they're probably coping poorly with you know whatever they're feeling right now but yeah. it just seems it's so awkward yeah it is i i think 
even Deli is like, okay, you guys are being a little weird. I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> and then Mosby is after her like, yeah, I'm going to second that motion. Mosby heads back to his own room but sets up a bed on a porch swing. Paula finds him there hours later and he tells her how strange he found her reaction to what happened. Rather than answer for it, she asks where Mosby was when Kennedy was shot. After asking her to specify, he tells her where he was for both Kennedy assassinations. For JFK, he was on his way to a football game, presumably to play, since we know he participated in the Pro Bowl that year. Five years later, when RFK was killed, he had already transitioned completely into private detective work and was sitting in a car spying on a cheating husband. When he asks the significance of the question, she admits there isn't one. Mosby takes his bed makings back inside and lays down, and Paula quickly follows. She makes a weird comment here that the body in the plane reminded her of RFK because of how slowly it moved, like the slow motion footage in the newsreels of the assassination. She lays down in bed with Mosby and shares more of her life. I do like that she says that it's a question that everybody knows the answer to. Yeah. You know, because I feel like that's the same way today. If you were to ask somebody about 9-11 sort of thing where you're just like, this is a conversation I know I can continue right. because you will be able to answer. Yep. First time anybody touched my breast was a boy called Billy Danruther. The nipple stayed hard for nearly half an hour afterward. Don't you think that's sad? No. I think it's kind of nice. I don't. I think it's so fucking sad. This might be a half-truth, since it sounds like a personal story, but Billy Danruther is the name of Humphrey Bogart's character in 1953's Beat the Devil. She lays down beside him and they kiss and caress each other. He plays with her boobs a bunch because her story got him fixated. For the briefest moment, it looks like she is struggling against his efforts, but within seconds it's clearly consensual. In the middle of the night, they're both awoken by screams from Deli's cabin. When Mosby finds Deli writhing in her bed, she's still freaking out about the look on the pilot's face as the fish ate him. She suddenly does an about face on leaving this place. I want to go back to Deli tomorrow. Can we? Promise? Sure, I promise. Promise? As he tries to comfort her, he pats her on the back, and she tells him why she likes it. I like being patted like that. It's supposed to remind you, before you were born, your mother's heart beating on your back. When he eventually returns to his own cabin, Paula is gone. The next morning, Deli is already sitting in the passenger seat of the car, waiting to go, as Mosby packs up his things. Tom sidles up to the passenger side window and offers a half-assed goodbye to his stepdaughter-slash-occasional-girlfriend. Paula watches their departure while sitting on stairs nearby, but doesn't say anything. Back in Arlene's living room, she cuts a check for Mosby. On his way out of the house, he finds Quentin fixing up a motorcycle in the driveway. Quentin is mad at him for bringing Deli back here, because she was better off away from home. Deli stops on a balcony outside to shout down at Quentin, and then Arlene appears to join the yelling. As Mosby drives down the street, he leaves a pack of maniacs in his rear view. That night, we see him sitting in his car, toothpick in mouth, second-guessing a plan. He sneaks up to the door to Marty Heller's apartment, and he starts to pick the lock with a credit card from his wallet. As he wanders through the living room, he stares at Marty's art collection, and classical music plays on a stereo. I do like the... Uh, art direction for Marty's place because yeah. I think it makes it very distinct. So like, you know it's Marty's place as he arrives because the first time he arrived, there's this weird crab mm -hmm. on the door. Yeah. And so now it's unmistakable that he's back at this apartment. Right. And then when he walks in um, and interacts with Marty at the same time as there was the first time, there's this, um, I don't even know what to call it, like 
magnifying circle on the windows. It's weird, though, because those same magnifying circles are on other windows. It is in other windows. Maybe it's a Malibu thing. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, it but, might have just been a thing at the time. Yeah, but I don't. It, it just felt very distinct. So you're like, okay, I know where he is right, now. Exactly. Seems kind of dangerous. Yeah, like the your house the, catches fire. Yeah, the setting sun is going down. All of a sudden, wham. well, that's like the the you go and you bought a crystal ball. And they're like, okay, make sure you cover this when you leave the house. It's like, oh, so the spirits don't get in. It's like, no, so you don't burn your house down mm. if the ca- light <laughs> catches it wrong. <laughs> but yes, spirits too. Mosby notices a half-eaten meal on the coffee table, and he sits down beside Marty's cat on the couch to enjoy it himself. He pours himself a glass of wine and crashes it clumsily into the bottle and table in an effort to rouse the sleeping lovers. Eventually, he cranks up the stereo to get their attention. Ellen is furious with Mosby that he found this the proper way to broach a conversation with them. Marty doesn't feel like Harry intends to include him in the chat at all. I think Harry would like me to leave. I don't think that's necessary. I think Harry thinks it is. Harry thinks if you call him Harry one more time, he's going to make you eat that cat. Marty takes his cat out on the balcony to give the Mosbys their privacy. He asks for Ellen to take him back, and to sweeten the pot, he's quitting his agency. Rather than celebrate, her reaction is just to ask why, and Mosby seems annoyed and stands to leave. I don't know. I don't know. I don't Do, uh, whatever you want. We cut right to Mosby and his buddy Nick from the computerized agency and Joey Ziegler as they move through a stadium tunnel toward a Raiders game. When Nick hears Ziegler offering Mosby stunt work, he is annoyed that he never responded to the agency job offer. Ziegler also mentions that he got Deli an extra card so she can do background work in their movies. Evidently, Arlene asked him to do it. Nick is surprised to hear that Ziegler knows Arlene. Back at his office, he has a list of the many people Arlene had affairs with, and Ziegler's name isn't on it. I'm one of a small select group. We hold meetings in a telephone booth. I get the impression they didn't actually have permission to shoot at this game, or they would have shot more here, right? I don't know how you shoot anything in the 70s without permission. It's not stealth. Well, in the 70s, I feel like a lot more was shot without permission than now. You think so? Yeah. I mean, you can't... You, I mean, all I, they I, needed was one shot coming through this tunnel. But I'm just saying, it's hard to sneak a camera in no, at that sure. point. No, for sure. That's true. Well, I mean, I suppose uh, if you're crafty enough, you could just say that, oh, yeah, Gene Hackman's going to uh, a game and we want to get a couple... He's going to throw the opening pitch of this football game. <laughs> what? <laughs> or or just like, say, they could just say, we're a news crew, we're following Gene Hackman. Yeah. And <laughs> we're following Gene Hackman, he hates us. <laughs> get the fuck out of my face we're, T- we're TMZ what the hell is TMZ we only see about five seconds of the game before we cut back to Mosby eating ice cream alone in his office as he packs things up he hits play on an answering machine but the first message is interrupted by a knock at the door bonjour private eye it's your last case speaking have you found any more little runaway girls hey Harry I want to talk to you about something I think you might be interested to know who And for the second time in the film, Mosby ignores a recording that might have given him some useful information. Yeah, because I I think that that would have cracked the case wide open had she just said who she was going to say. It also drives me completely insane that we never come back to this. That he doesn't like instantly try to come get the rest of this recording at any point in this movie. Yeah, and later he even mentions like, oh no, she tried to call me, but... And he but doesn't I say, like, oh, I never to listen to the, to the rest, rest of the message. He probably deleted it before like, he even listened what? to it. Because he's trying so hard not to be interested in her that he doesn't even care about what the rest of this message says. 
Ellen walks in wearing a surprisingly transparent shirt. She admits that she hasn't been doing well without him. Mosby continues packing up the office a bit and then approaches her. They kiss and hold each other for a bit, and we cut right to a post-coital conversation. She senses a change in him. He tells her a story about his estranged father. She asks if Mosby and his father were different when they met, and Mosby admits they never officially met. But I thought you stayed with him. You, you told me for a week. Turns out Mosby treated the hunt for his father like any other job. He found him on a park bench somewhere reading the funny pages to himself. Mosby never introduced himself. Ellen is for some reason shaken by this revelation, as though it means something very deep to her. The next day, Ellen is returning to their home and honking her horn a lot. When Harry comes out to see her, she has some unfortunate news. She just heard on the radio that Delhi has died. We cut right to Mosby sitting with Ziegler in a screening room as they review the dailies from set. Ziegler has a huge cast wrapped around his right arm. Evidently, Delhi was killed mid-take on the set of Ziegler's film. We see a couple old cars racing through a town set. One plows into a pile of chickens in boxes, and Ziegler assures Mosby that the chickens all lived. The green car we saw Quentin working on back at the start swerves around a corner and out of frame, and suddenly, after a crash, the crew are all racing toward it concerned. It was being driven by Ziegler with Deli in the passenger seat. When they switch to the B-cam, Mosby catches a glimpse of Quentin working under the car just before they say action. Mosby notices another camera in the background, and Ziegler says some film students were shooting a 16mm documentary on set. As the take plays out, the accident is again off-camera. Mosby asks if there's any more footage, and Ziegler says the student documentary got some on camera, but he doesn't want to see it again. He steps out of the theater so they can run it for Mosby. Will you roll to 16, please? The take starts with Ziegler checking Deli's seatbelt as she smiles and waves to the camera. Quentin slams down the hood and the car pulls away. When the picture comes back up, we are post-accident and everyone's running toward the crash. The car is upside down and Deli's body can be seen bloody and folded in the wreck. Ziegler is also pretty fucked up, but not so bad that he didn't survive, obviously. The crew shout at the student documentarians to stop filming, and the film runs out. Or cuts, I guess. Probably didn't run out. He sits in shock in the theater and eventually steps out to find Ziegler. Mosby asks if it's possible Quentin did something to the car to cause the accident, but Ziegler assures him it's his own fault. Look, Harry, I did it. I was the driver. You fucking driver. Mosby follows Ziegler out onto the lot, and we cut right to Mosby arriving at Arlene Iverson's place. She's sunbathing beside her pool, drunk. You heard. That's right, Mrs. Iverson. I heard. Is that why you're in mourning? She's offended at first, but Mosby goes on the offensive because of how little she appears to care. I'm sorry the poor little bitch is dead. And... When the time comes, I'll cry for her, but you won't be around to see it, Mr. Smartass Mosby. She waves him out of her home, and he speeds over to Quentin's place. He walks right in and makes a lot of noise to get Quentin's attention, the third time in the film he has used this tactic. He comes right out and accuses Quentin of murdering Deli. He knows at this point that Arlene gets Deli's biological dad's money if Deli dies, but Quentin points out that he has nothing to gain from Deli's death. Mosby asks Quentin why he was already at Arlene's place when he dropped off Delhi, insinuating he was there to coordinate the accident with Arlene in exchange for probably money, but Quentin says that he was there to answer questions about Elman. Turns out, Elman is dead. He was the guy in the underwater plane. He must have been freshly in the water because it was barely 24 hours from Mosby leaving the New Mexico set and arriving in Florida, and he didn't see the plane go down while he was there, so. Yeah, and I'm assuming that's what Delhi was going to say in her message. Right. 
Right. Apparently, Arlene had the same suspicion Mosby does now that Quentin sabotaged the plane to get back at Elman for taking Delhi away, but he insists he had nothing to do with it. And I doubt he'd bring it up with Mosby here, who clearly hates him if he were involved in any way. When Mosby gets loud and angry in his face, Quentin yanks down a pile of stuff to knock Mosby over. Next, he grabs an electric guitar and takes a swing at the still-approaching detective and then makes a run for it while Mosby is dazed on the floor. Quentin tears away on his motorcycle before Mosby can get outside. We cut right to Mosby and Ziegler's trailer on set, and we learn that after some digging, Mosby discovered that Paula did not report the plane to the Coast Guard like he thought she did, and he plans another flight to get some answers. Mosby's newest conclusion is that Tom Iverson and Quentin have been planning this together, though it's unclear what, if anything, Tom has to gain from his stepdaughter's death. Ziegler claims not to see the connection, but all Mosby has is a connection. Quentin worked with Tom in stunts, and Quentin had motive to kill both Deli and Elman. The only mystery in this theory is why Tom would help Quentin kill his own stepdaughter. Ellen comes to the airport to see Mosby off to Florida again. She encourages him to just report what he knows to the local law enforcement instead of flying all the way out there to solve things himself. She thought he was past all this. It's why she came back even. He leans in, forgives her indiscretions, and even admits to his own. I don't know when you get... When we get like that, we reach out for other people. Marty was a distress signal. Fortunately, you were passing by at I the didn't time. mean just you. I know what you didn't mean. They seem to reach an understanding and he boards the plane. He arrives in Florida in the middle of the night. Time for some titular night moves. <laughs> he wanders out onto the dock and he hears dolphins splashing around. He notices a corpse in the water with them, and when he yanks it up by the hair, it's Quentin. Shocked yet again, Mosby stands up and steals one of Tom's boats to head out to the cabins across the water. If you're going to kill Quentin, why leave his body just out? That was my question. Like, I don't understand whatever happened here. He's dead, and you left his body in a cage full of dolphins in a place that clearly belongs to you. Yeah. This well, is weird. But they're not like asleep right now. I think this just happened and they're about to take care of it. I guess it might have just happened. It just seems really weird to just leave a body floating in a cage of dolphins on a no, location I, that I belongs agree. to you. I agree. But I think the plan was that they were going to go back to the cabins. They were going to bring the boat over here and they were going to drag him out to where the plane is and probably put him in the plane. Maybe. He finds Tom and Paula on the glass-bottom boat. Mosby jogs up with a gun drawn and accuses Tom of killing Quentin. Suspiciously, Tom moves to take a seat in the captain's chair during his confession, which seems to exonerate Quentin of all wrongdoing. Pain in the ass. Pushing around, threatening to go to the Coast Guard about Elman. He wouldn't believe it was an accident. Talking about Daly, the cops. I didn't want to put him in the... Suddenly, he engages the engine to throw Mosby off balance. Tom runs across the boat and tackles Mosby overboard into the water. Paula is worried they'll get caught in the motor and turns it off. Mosby and Tom fight their way to shore while Paula shouts at them to stop. Mosby dodges a tackle and Tom cracks his head on a dock post, knocking himself out. Mosby demands answers from Paula. What was in Marv Elmer's plane? Drugs? Was it drugs? No, no drugs. We're smuggling in something from the Yucatan. It's a piece of junk worth half a million, according to Tom. They've been flying it in piece by piece. The crazy bastards have been at it for months. So now we're reaching all the way back to those little clay figurines that Nick had in his office. Why? But why? I don't know. Nick's why not connected Nick, to this. Yeah. But that, that is like my ultimate question of this whole movie. It's like we introduce the concept 
of artifacts being worth a lot of money through Nick. But the only the, person who's collecting them is not involved. In wait, then yeah. we don't connect Nick back to any right. of this. I don't get it. Mosby asks her where the Yucatan junk is, and she says it's in the water near the plane. Did it fall out of the plane? Will the water not destroy it? Like I think they were trying to preserve it in a safe place. Out that doesn't there. seem like a safe place. I honestly... It's, this thing's made out of clay. It shouldn't be underwater. I honestly am very confused about the end of this movie. And I don't understand how the plane... Did the plane crash? Or did I, it land and then they sank it? No, I honestly think that Quentin did it. But I don't understand... No, Quentin didn't do it. But I don't get what Quentin's involvement in this is. Did he sabotage the car? No. Quentin didn't do anything to anybody. Are you sure? Yeah, because right here, Tom admits that Quentin was threatening to go to the Coast Guard when he heard about Marv Elman's plane going down. Yeah. Qu- Quentin put it together. Quentin before... put everything together, and he didn't want to be blamed for anything. Yeah. And so when he showed up, he was killed because he was going to reveal information yeah. I think that he was, was shaken by Mosby showing up. And this Mosby was technically after Arlene, the second person to accuse him of murdering Elman. So he's like, I need to figure out who fucking did this and set the record straight. And But when he showed up to Tom's place, Tom was like, I'll just fucking kill you because then I don't have to deal with this anymore. Hmm. Mosby tells Paula they're going to go find that Yucatan stuff right now. She tells him he'll need someone who can dive 80 feet, i.e. her. She picks up the gun they were fighting over on the boat, and to assure us that she doesn't intend to double-cross him, she tosses the weapon overboard. This is like, at this point, Yeah. why do you need to go see the artifacts that they've stolen? He just wants answers in some form. Yeah, but honestly, it's his ego right. trying to finish this case. And he be should like, start by I have tying the evidence. up Tom and calling yeah. the police right now. Instead of having him knocked out just in the sand while right. you drive off. Yeah. They take the boat out on the water for hours and arrive as the sun is rising. Mosby puts together here that when they found the plane that night, she put the marker out for Tom and not for the Coast Guard and kept Mosby distracted in bed while Tom moved their prize away from the plane. To me, it doesn't line up that Tom is the one moving the merchandise from the yeah, plane. Yeah, because he, he's not going to be capable of swimming down 80 feet and moving this yeah, huge thing it, it seems to me like Paula is the diver of the group. Right, yeah. But she did disappear after he went to Comfort Deli, so that's probably when she did it. He realizes all her cute little stories were bullshit, and we start to see an explanation for everything that's happened, except Deli's death which we might be able to chalk up to an unrelated incident. He's still frustrated by how little he has solved. What does it matter, Harry? I want to know what it's all about. I told you what it's all about. You! What the hell are you all about? You're asking the wrong questions. Do you guys recall the last time someone was told they were asking the wrong questions? No. (laughs) It was an alien who said that they were asking the wrong questions. No, I have no idea. (laughs) In Stardust Memories, as Woody Allen interrogates the departing aliens on the secrets of the universe. You guys got to tell me, why is there so much human suffering? This is unanswerable. Is there a God? These are the wrong questions. (laughs) Mosby and Paula reach the marker and she suits up to dive. Mosby watches her diving deeper through the glass bottom boat. Suddenly, a seaplane appears in the sky and swings low overhead. When it loops back around, Mosby tries to identify the pilot, and in the pilot's POV, we see the pilot waving a Mac-10 out the window. Okay, but hold on. (laughs) Hold on just one second. Yeah. We go out on this boat, and we get to the marker. Yeah. The marker, where she dropped it where the plane was. Not where the prize was. Well, it used to be where the artifact was. Well, maybe they moved the, the marker when they moved the prize. 
Oh, okay, maybe, I guess. But, yeah. like, yeah, the marker was where the plane was, and the prize was moved that evening when she was distracting him with sex. Yes. So I assumed that the marker would not be where their prized possession was yeah. anymore. That seems like a bad idea if you're like, let's put this treasure right here in the ocean, and then we'll put a big marker on top yes! of it where anybody can find it. Boats, <laughs> planes, anybody would see this that there's clearly something do. important here. In fact, well, I would remove the marker altogether because yeah. I don't want to put the marker where the plane is, where the dude is dead, yeah, and you I don't want, the Coast Guard want it to find where it. my artifact yeah. is. <laughs> and also, how did this plane find them? Right. And if nobody ever called the Coast Guard, then how did they find Marv Elman's body? How did the officials find it? Well, I have an idea how the plane found them. Okay. I mean, the plane found them because of who is flying the plane. Right. But, but at first, at, at this point, we assume that Tom is flying the plane. Right. Yes. At this because point, we think he Tom was is. left yes. alive and he has access to planes. The pilot continues firing on the boat and one bullet tears through Mosby's leg. He collapses to the floor of the boat as the plane loops around and weirdly sticks his head out for the pilot to take another shot at. Like, just get down. Hide. Why are you peeking? Stay away from outside the boat. In fact, play dead. Play dead. Or drive the boat. (laughs) Yeah. The plane lands on the water and stops for a moment, and then something insane happens. Mosby is unarmed and defenseless on the boat. If you want him dead, just cruise on up and shoot him again, Mm -hmm. unless you're out of bullets or something, which, well, it turns out he is out of bullets. Well, and also, I thought for sure, Mosley's going to pile this boat right into that plane. Right. From under the water, a small inflatable raft rises, carrying in it the treasure of the Yucatan, another much larger clay sculpture with a chicken head on one side and a big old chicken dick on the other side. Do you remember the last time we were floating artifacts from the bottom using uh, air flotation? Raise the Raise Titanic. The Titanic. Uh, I was going to say for your eyes only. Okay. What was the artifact? Oh, yeah. She, at the very beginning yeah she's uh there, she's floating up uh relics from the yeah the pilot starts the engine again and gears up to ram the boat which would not be in my first million plans no i think it should be in mosby's plan right because i i think plane versus boat or seaplane versus boat the boat's gonna come out right better in this situation yeah, it's a rights of tonnage situation you're definitely going to destroy this plane with a boat versus the other way around Just behind the statue, Paula surfaces between the plane and the boat and starts swimming toward Mosby. He screams and waves frantically for her to dive again, out of danger. The pilot swings the Mac-10 out the window, but it appears he is, in fact, out of ammo because it's just click, click, clicking as he pulls the trigger. I don't know why he's even doing that if the gun's out of ammo. Well, I don't know if it's out of ammo or if it just needs to be cocked again, but he can't. Because he's (laughs) only got one arm (laughs) to use because the other one's uh, presumably piloting the plane or something. Paula doesn't hear the plane coming till it's too late, and she spins around to see the plane blasting over the water and then cracking her in the head with one of its aluminum pontoons. In the collision, her oxygen tank erupts behind her and her entire skull is a fountain of blood. As the plane continues forward, he drags his pontoons into the floating treasure, and the pontoons are wrenched from the base of the plane. It's tossed at an odd angle into the air, and the plane comes down hard into the side of the glass-bottom boat, losing its wings and sinking slowly into the water. I guess that was his plan... I I don't know what he was trying to do. When Mosby looks through the glass bottom into the sinking cockpit, the shape he sees has an enormous cast wrapped around its right arm. What? We cut to Joey Ziegler's POV looking up through the cockpit window, water, and glass bottom boat back into Mosby's helpless face. Mosby grasps at the window, but it's out of his hands now. Conceivably, he could have dived overboard and attempted to pull his friend free, but there's plenty of risk of dying in that process. Yeah. Not to mention this guy was just trying to kill him and successfully killed Paula. 
We cut back and forth from their POVs as the cockpit fills with water, and Ziegler just continually shakes his head no as he goes down. Mosby loses sight of Ziegler's face in a flood of bubbles, and the plane drifts down to the ocean floor. He struggles to put together what he's just seen, and then drags his way to the boat's controls to get it moving again. He manages to get the engine going with help from Annette on a stick, but he can't steer, and when he collapses, the boat seems to just swim in circles around the floating treasure. The credits roll. Or I guess fade in and out in cards they don't roll the end i mean you're and i realize you're shot in the leg but like your survival is dependent on you getting back to shore i feel like crawl like two feet more and steer this boat you have another leg there was a guy that just successfully crashed a plane into you who only had one arm yeah just uh utilize more of your body he he piloted a plane like I i don't even know how you do that yeah like any of it really yeah there's all sorts of knobs on the right that you have to turn presumably (laughs) how did he do it and then shot out of the maybe all planes fly themselves it's not just (laughs) passenger planes anymore i don't get how ziegler was able to find them like this he knew where the plane was he knew where everything was he was a part of all of this yeah i know i I get that part but i I don't well i i get that he was a part of it just because we see him and go oh i guess he was a part of it yeah but i don't get how ziegler was able to find the marker i don't feel like tom and paula would have taken Ziegler with his broken arm out on a boat and said, here's where the treasure is. Let's head back in. I mean, if they even just faxed him coordinates or, or some kind of a... It, yeah, but it doesn't... Like, why? Because he's a part of whatever they're doing. So they might be... They might have just sent him something and said, hey, just so you know, we moved the treasure and it's at these... Such and such? These parameters. Well, and he specifically knew that mosby was coming out here so right. he's like shit i gotta get to there real fast yeah it's possible he was flying around for a while and he found them because okay. the boat was there not because he's of the just marker. looking for a boat yeah when they found the plane uh-huh when when delhi found the plane that was completely by accident or I think was so paula actively looking for the how plane? do you not know when you take the boat out that you're relatively close to the area in which this happened yeah, because the ocean, I think, is pretty big, and it took them hours to get here. Yeah. And they and didn't know that the plane was going to be right under them. Yeah. Or were they staging that as a, like, oh, we're going to pretend we found the plane that night. Right. But but that would imply that Delhi knew. It still makes me wonder if this plane crashed or was sank here. Like, did they kill him and then sink the plane with him in it, or did his plane crashed and they went back there to collect what was in it. Well, because I couldn't tell from the wreckage if it was a seaplane. Yeah. I, I assume that it was. I, I think a lot of this is vague on purpose because Penn wanted to make a story about, and, and he said as much, that where you didn't get all the answers yeah, well. and that you understood that there was there was more here than the detective was ever able to uncover and he just ran out of witnesses because everybody died. Everyone who knows anything died except for Arlene Iverson. And I don't know how much she knows at all. Yeah, because I, I don't think she knew about killing Delhi. Right. But by the end of the movie, every other character that we've met is dead. Except yeah. for it's basically just the Iversons. Because Arlene Iverson and Tom Iverson are still alive. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess Tom is going to have to fill us in with his testimony on whatever was going on. And I just want to be sure that I understand. Delhi was killed because she put together that Elman was the pilot that she saw in the water. That's the only reason she was killed? Yeah, I would think so, because Ziegler's the one who killed her, even right. though he had this paternal instinct for her the but whole time. So the fact that her mom would benefit from the 
from her death is totally irrelevant. Unless she and Ziegler coordinated it. Right. Because he said Arlene wanted me to get her an extra card. So he's like, she reached out to him and said, you should bring my daughter on set. And he's like, hey, we both have a really good reason to kill your daughter. Is it cool if I kill your daughter? And she was probably like, yeah, go ahead. She screwed my boyfriend. I'm still mad about it. Even though you killed him. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess this goes to credit Ziegler as a stuntman making his car 100% death proof. Yeah. But you got to be sitting where he's sitting. But, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but man, like what a, I mean, for show, unless, no, because he's still wearing the cast. I thought, it, I think it would have been cool to show, not have, not show him with the cast in the end. Yeah. Well, he's like, like, that wasn't real. Like he was in the crash, but the cast was for show. Well, I mean, like, it doesn't, it, it helps his case that he was able to break his arm in the accident Ugh. and make it look completely accidental. I mean, how do you, how do you rig a crash to know that you're not going to die in it, knowing that you want to kill the person next to you? Well, I think stuntmen are, are, that's their whole thing is crashing in a way that doesn't hurt them or it doesn't hurt them as badly as it could. And so all he had to do was take it a little bit harder to ensure that it would kill somebody who wasn't in the same roll cage he was. I suppose. The movie reminds me a lot of The Nice Guys. Oh, uh, for sure. Because I feel like everything Deli wears could easily be something that Angari Rice wore. That's the Ryan Gosling's daughter in that movie. Yeah. Um, and also they both start with that the same like old school Warner Brothers logo where it's like red and black yeah. and red. Both missing daughter cases. Yeah. And and it turns out like the mom is kind of shitty in both cases and stands yep. to win a bunch of money if something terrible happens to the daughter. And in both cases, something terrible does happen to the daughter. Holy crap. Did nice is, did nice guys rip off night moves? Well, I would I would be uh, interested in watching them back to back. I, I started, I got about halfway through nice guys, but I've, I've loved that movie. But it's, it's great. Yeah. They're very, very similar. And they both deal with, you know, Los Angeles and the film industry and and uh all that kind of stuff but there's a lot of of uh, fun little details there but i i enjoyed this um even though we don't get a lot of answers from it um i still enjoy the filmmaking a lot and that last sequence with the the plane hitting the boat and then sinking and looking through the glass bottom back and forth yeah it's it's fascinating the photography is so great and there's no music like everything is dead quiet and you're just watching this and you're as confused as gene hackman is you're like what does this mean? What you're racking your brain? What could this possibly mean? I don't understand. Why would Ziegler do this? This whole time he's been a protector of hers, and he's been so angry at the way that other people take advantage of her. I want to know for sure if Arlene was involved. Yeah, I think she was, but I because but, she clearly benefits. But then she hired a PI. But then what the PI found out was that these guys were trying to smuggle these artifacts in, which when her daughter found out, got her daughter killed. And then does that mean that Arlene participated in order to get her daughter killed? I I don't know. And that's your connection to Nick. Nick is involved because- Nick is the one who took the case. Nick is the one who gave the case to him. So Arlene did want this to happen. And and Nick was involved the whole time. And Nick was involved the whole time, passed it to Moe's- because Mosby because Mosby's kind of a fuck figure, up. Figure it out. Yeah. Interesting. I don't. I don't it's quite like a understand. Fletch situation where they passed it to the guy who they knew would screw it up. Or Clute. Oh sure, yeah. Or uh, oh, Heavenly Dog. <laughs> Specifically hiring the worst detective because you don't want the mystery solved. Yeah. Or Private Eyes. But I, I mean, I guess I guess I don't really understand Arlene's involvement because 
her daughter doesn't get killed till much later in the process. It's just like... As long as it happens before her 25th birthday, she doesn't care. I guess, but you know all of these guys are involved and your daughter is in Florida with all these people who are involved in all of this shit. Well, the nice thing is that there's fewer people involved every day as they keep dying (laughs) off Mm -hmm. in mysterious accidents. But then she came all the way back to L.A., and got an extra card in order to be killed. I don't know. This whole thing is so confusing to Yeah, me. it is. There's a lot to it. But it still gets a thumbs up from me. I'll give it a thumbs up. Oh, I for just, sure. I just wish I understood it. Yeah. I really like the Paula character. Um, yeah. All the weird little lines she gets and, and how confusing all of her dialogue is. She just seems like sort of otherworldly a little yeah. bit. She's a little crooked, but it's it's fun. And but But she also doesn't seem... She also doesn't seem very remorseful at all. No, nobody like, does. Yeah. Uh, that, Obviously, the mom doesn't care that her daughter died. Ziegler doesn't seem broken up about it. Like, I mean, he, he does a little bit in his way. Yeah, but he's mm-hmm. clearly acting. He seems as sad about her dying as he did about slamming that kid's head on a table. Where he's just like, man, I wish I hadn't crashed that car and killed that girl. Oh, well. Anyway, it's my fault. <laughs> and, then, and then just let's move on. Let's go back to set. Our director here was Arthur Penn. The film actually recycles several plots from the Stuntman novel, which Penn was at one point attached to direct before, uh, I think, Richard Rush took it over. Before this, he directed The Miracle Worker, Bonnie and Clyde, and Little Big Man. We'll see his work later this season for Four Friends, not to be confused with The Four Seasons. Writer Alan Sharp, his next screenplay after this was Damnation Alley, and he later writes Rob Roy, starring Liam Neeson. The music was from Michael Small. He has composer credits on Clute, The Parallax View, and The Stepford Wives before this. Later, he scores Drowning Pool, Marathon Man, Audrey Rose, Girlfriends, Going in Style. And so far, we've heard his work in Those Lips, Those Eyes, and The Postman Always Rings Twice. He's back this season for Continental Divide and Rollover. And later, we'll hear his work in The Star Chamber, Kidco, and Jaws the Revenge. I, I, I think it's interesting that he's got a credit for the China Syndrome. Because the China Syndrome has almost no soundtrack. Right, yeah. That that's like the intent is that there's no, there's maybe, no music. Maybe he did one that was rejected at the mm. last second. Cinematographer Bruce Surtees. He's a regular collaborator of Clint Eastwood's, whose work we saw for two Patreon episodes in a row, Play Misty for Me and Dirty Harry last year. He also collaborates with Eastwood in The Beguiled, Joe Kidd, High Plains Drifter, Outlaw Josie Wales, Escape from Alcatraz, Sudden Impact, and Pale Rider. He also lights Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, Inchone, Beverly Hills Cop, Psycho 3, Rat Boy, Licensed to Drive, and The Super with Joe Pesci. Editor Dee Dee Allen, Dee Dee edited Bonnie and Clyde and Little Big Man for Director Penn, also Slaughterhouse 5, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, Slapshot, and The Wiz. We'll see Dee Dee's work later this season for Reds. More recently, but admittedly not recently, Dee Dee edited Barry Sonnenfeld's Adams Family in 1991. Editor Stephen A. Rotter, Previously cut The Seven Ups, and later The Missouri Breaks, The World According to Garp, The Right Stuff, Ishtar, My Blue Heaven, and most recently 2007's Enchanted. Gene Hackman played Harry Mosby. We've seen him in The French Connection all night long and Superman 2 so far. He's back this season for Reds. He's also the blind man in Young Frankenstein and Reverend Scott in Poseidon Adventure. Later he does Hoosiers, The Quick and the Dead, The Royal Tannenbaums. He's played U.S. presidents in Absolute Power and Welcome to Mooseport. He was previously Oscar-nominated for his role in Bonnie and Clyde from the same director and won a second Oscar for Best Supporting Actor in Unforgiven. This is Hackman's second of three collaborations with Penn after Bonnie and Clyde and before 85's Target. This is also Hackman's second of four Harrys. 
after Harry Call in The Conversation and followed by Harry McKenzie in Twice in a Lifetime and Harry Zim in Get Shorty. Jennifer Warren played Paula. She's Francine in Slapshot, mostly TV credits in the 80s, but we may see her for Mutant in our 1984 season. Edward Binns played Joey Ziegler. He's back next season for The Verdict. Earlier, he shows up in Patton, North by Northwest. He also shows up as Juror 6 in 12 Angry Men. Can you guys name all the jurors from 12 Angry Men that we've had so far? What? No. No. (laughs) Amazingly, we still haven't had juror number one, Martin Balsam, who I feel like I've seen the most movies from, probably. Uh, Juror number two is John Fiedler. Have we seen John Fiedler? Yes, we have. In what? Midnight Madness. Midnight Madness and Cannonball Run and The Fox and the Hound. He's been in three. Two were voices... Or no, I guess he was he was live action in Midnight Madness. He's just doing the yeah. the piglet voice. Juror number three was Lee J. Cobb, who passed away in 76, so it'll have to be a Patreon episode, but I bet The Exorcist is a shoe-in for December of 73. Juror number four was E.G. Marshall. Have we had E.G. Marshall? Uh, that sounds familiar. E.G. Marshall was the president in Superman 2. Uh. Juror number five we haven't had yet, Jack Klugman. Juror number six is in this one. Juror seven is Jack Warden. Have we had Jack Warden yet? Yeah. Right? We have. We just had him in Choo Choo and yeah. the, yeah. the Philly Flash. Yep. And before that, used cars and the Great Muppet Caper. Juror eight is Henry Fonda. We'll see him soon. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I don't think we've had Henry Fonda. He's coming up later this season in On Golden Pond, which he did instead of First Monday in October. We might have seen him. Juror nine is Joseph Sweeney. Nothing there yet. Juror ten is Ed Bagley, who we haven't seen yet, but we've had his son in something. What did we see Ed Bigley Jr. in? Oh, shoot. He was like a, a lawyer in uh, that private lessons? He was not a lawyer. He was a tennis was coach. A who tennis was coach, Posing sorry. as a detective. But he was still private lessons. Yep, it I was win. private lessons. You win. <laughs> Juror 11 is George Voskovec, who we had last season as Dr. Gerald Finney, time travel scientist in Somewhere in Time. And juror number 12, Robert Weber, has been in a couple movies so far. What have we had Robert Weber in? I don't know. Private Benjamin and SOB. Harris Eulen played Marty Heller. He played Bernstein in Scarface, James Cutter in Clear and Present Danger, and Dad in Stewart Saves His Family. He's Dr. Leeds in Multiplicity, the John Hammond-esque inventor of the film's cloning technology. More recently, he was Orson Snyder, owner of the former Redskins football team on Kimmy Schmidt. But, of course, whenever I see Eulen's face or hear his name... I always think of the same line of dialogue wherein he expresses a regret for a sentence he handed down to a pair of murderers. Scalari brothers! Friends of yours! I tried them for murder! Gave them the chair! Of course, that comes from Ghostbusters 2. Uh, my favorite, Yulin, uh, is from an episode of DS9. Oh, okay. Uh, it's a really amazing character piece in which he is a Cardassian who's been detained at the station because because uh, he's a war criminal okay and he's trying to convince them that he's not who they think he is with this certain level of smugness like it's like oh, um you know no you got the wrong guy yeah and it's this incredibly like twisted tale of who he really is and what he's doing yeah and it's, um, it's it's such a great performance i still need to check out deep space nine i haven't done any of that one yet Kenneth Mars played Nick. He's credited as Marshall in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He's Hugh Simon in What's Up Doc, Agent Will in Parallax View, and Stanton Boyd, owner-operator of Boyd Aviation, and I believe the father-in-law of Tim Matheson's Alan Stanwyck character in Fletch. Yeah. What kind of name is Poon? Comanche Indian. (laughs) (laughs) He also has a lot of voice acting credits, including the voice of Triton, 
King Triton, oh. and The Little Mermaid. Hmm. He also voiced Grandpa Longneck in a short-form Land Before Time animated series. Janet Ward played Arlene Iverson. She was Mrs. Grady in Failsafe, Mrs. Bingham in the Anderson Tapes, and this was her last feature film role. James Woods played Quentin. We saw him as a street violinist in The Black Marble earlier this season, and then he showed up in Eyewitness. He's front and center in Videodrome and Salvador, and back later in Casino, Nixon, He's Hades and Hercules, Contact. He's also the voice of Lex Luthor opposite our friend Jason Lewis as Superman in Justice League Action. Anthony Costello played Marv Elman. Before this, he was Dave Evans in The Laughing Policeman. And before that, he played a character named Bigfoot in Will Penny with Charlton Heston. I haven't seen it, but judging from the description, it sounds like a straightforward Western story. So I'm guessing the Bigfoot character is not an actual Sasquatch. (laughs) John Crawford played Tom Iverson. He and director Arthur Penn passed away one week apart in late September of 2010. He's not related to Joan Crawford, but they did appear together in 1965's I Saw What You Did. And 1967's sequel, I Still Saw What You Did. Dot, dot, dot. That's not true. I mean, <laughs> He's back as the mayor of San Francisco in Dirty Harry's sequel, The Enforcer, and we'll see him next in The Boogans later this season. Melanie Griffith played Deli Grasner. This was her first feature film credit. The same year, she was Skylar Devereaux in The Drowning Pool. We saw her earlier this season as Lucy in Underground Aces, and she's back later this season, getting viciously attacked by lions on the set of Roar. (laughs) Turns out she was destined to play the young girl whose Hollywood mom, Tippi Hedren, didn't raise her in the safest environment. Later, she shows up in Working Girl, Bonfire of the Vanities, Milk Money, and The Disaster Artist. One year after this film, she married and divorced Don Johnson, whom she remarried in the 80s, until they divorced again and she married Antonio Banderas. Her daughter is Dakota Johnson of the Fifty Shades films. Dennis Dugan played Boy. I think this is the kid that spills the drink on Joey Ziegler and Harry Mosby in the bar. The same year, he appears in Day of the Locust. We saw him last as Chris in The Howling, and he's actually done even more work behind the camera. He directed Problem Child, Happy Gilmore, Beverly Hills Ninja, Big Daddy, Saving Silverman, Grown Ups, and Grown Ups 2 and he plays small parts in almost all of them. Max Gale played Stud. We saw him last as Lee Gregory for Minnesota Cardiac Arrest, and we'll see him next in DC Cab as Harold. He shows up in 93 in an episode of Quantum Leap where Dr. Sam Beckett leaps into his wife, Margaret. (laughs) Susan Clark played Ellen. We just had her as Gabe Kaplan's wife in Nobody's Perfect, which also starred her real-life husband, Alex Karras. She's back next season as Cherry Forever in Porky's, also starring her husband. They also appeared as husband and wife on Webster as the Papadopoulos. She also played Lavana Harding in a 1994 TV movie about Tanya Harding. In I, Tanya, the same part is played by Allison Janney. Neil Brooks Cunningham did a voice in this film. He plays Patrolman Miskowski in Taking of Pelham 123 and Dave Marco, husband of Paul Apprentice's Bobby Marco in The Stepford Wives. Michael Ebert is another uncredited voice in the film. Not many credits I recognized, but his wife Sandra Seacat also shows up for an uncredited role further down in my notes. Rene Enriquez did another voice. He was Diaz in Woody Allen's Bananas and Lieutenant Ray Calitano in Hill Street Blues. Tim Halderman was a delivery boy uncredited. I don't remember a delivery boy. Last season, he was in Mountain Men, Private Benjamin, and A Change of Seasons. He's later Tim in Police Academy 2 and Mr. Monroe in MacGyver episode Rush to Judgment. Carrie Lofton played a cop uncredited. He's an old school stunt guy, as are most of the remaining credits, but he's also a motorcycle cop in The Taking of Pelham 123 and a dice player and truck driver in Walking Tall's 1 and 2. John Moyo played another cop. 
He was a sheriff's deputy in Where the Buffalo Roam last season, and he's also credited as screaming driver in planes, trains, and automobiles. That's probably when they're driving the wrong way on yeah. the freeway. You're going the wrong way. Victor Paul played another cop. He was a cab driver in our Patreon review of Dirty Harry last year. Last season, Victor was a bookie in Baltimore Bullet and an irate driver in Jazz Singer. Bizarrely, his final credit was in a Tales from the Crypt episode where he played a character named Rudy DeLuca, but I didn't dig in deep enough to find out why they used Rudy DeLuca's name for yeah. this character. Christopher Reardon was a suspect as a youth. He's credited as a suspect as a youth. Um, he's also credited as Gay Boy in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and most recently he appears as a recurring customer Chris on Superstore, which I think just ended. Sandra Seacat was another uncredited voice. This was her feature film debut. She was Henrietta Crown in The Kidnapping of the President last season, and later she's Mima in Crazy in Alabama, Tanya in Palo Alto, and most recently she appears as Josie Pyre in the TV miniseries Under the Banner of Heaven, with Andrew Garfield, Sam Worthington, and Daisy Edgar-Jones. I worked on that one. Did you? Well, we did some visual effects. Well, those are all the credits I have for this one. I think that's everything for Night Moves. Our very special thanks goes to Louis Letizia for their generous contribution to the show. Remember, if there's any title you'd like us to review, our top Patreon tier includes a custom review of any pre-1980 title. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year, and we can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing whatever you choose. We leave you now with a trailer for Night Moves. Well, I think Harry would like me to leave. I don't think that's necessary. I think Harry thinks it is. Harry thinks if you call him Harry one more time, he's going to make you eat that cat. Gene Hackman. <laughs> is Harry Mosby. Hello, Harry. In Night Moves. Well, come on, take a swing at me, Harry, the way Sam Spade would. He's a private investigator. My daughter, Delhi. Would you believe Delilah? Well, she's gone. How long gone? Two weeks. Go find her. Making a living. Well, let's say 125 a day in legitimate expenses. From other people's lives. You can get cheaper. Can I get better? You're hired. Making a mess of his own. God, you're really prime, Ellen, you know that? I can't do screwing another guy and you attack my lifestyle! Your lifestyle has nothing to do with it! Night Moves. It's a mystery. I'm looking for Deli Grasner. Deli isn't around here anymore. Where the suspects are also the victims. I want to know what I walked into. Ask your wife. Well, are we going to talk about it? Well, sure, ball run with it. Where the questions... All right, what's it all about, Mosby? Is there still much uh, smuggling going on around here? The dogs have fleas. Where were you when Kennedy got shot? Have too many answers. <laughs> Where every clue is a lie. I've been listening to ping pong talk long enough. What was in Marv Elman's plane? Drugs? Was it drugs? Night moves. Check. Check. Ah, oh, it's a beauty. It's a game where every player is a pawn. Harry Mosby, isn't it? Every move is a wrong one. <laughs> and the winner loses everything. I want to know what it's all about. I told you what it's all about. You, what the hell are you all about? You're asking the wrong question. Gene Hackman in Night Moves.